Hey guys, and welcome to episode 31 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Now, in today's pod, we hit two hot button subjects. So the first one is something that I experienced and decided that I wanted to do a podcast about it, which was the lack of standardization across bikes. So this is everything from clothes sizing to the mounts that you can use for a computer through to bottom bracket standards. I mean, it's, I mean, the list is endless. So I sat down with Jamie, Liam, Matt and Pat to discuss everything around standardization, why things aren't currently standardized and basically what we think should be standardized but isn't. Uh, and then in the second part, we spoke with Stephen May, who is the UK brand manager for Knapp, which is a an e-bike which is essentially designed for the larger person. And we were also joined by Jack and Mildred, who also were kind of discussing around why the bike industry doesn't really tend to cater for larger people. So that was, again, like a really interesting conversation. Stephen knows exactly what people are looking for in terms of uh, bikes that can be used for people who are over kind of, you know, 16 stone. Uh, and Mildred has a huge amount of information about that. She's been writing about this kind of issue for years. So that was a really interesting conversation as well. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy the episode. And uh, yeah, here's episode 31 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. So this all started because I gave I gave a colleague at work one of the original Wahoo elements as a very very similar mount oh, to yeah. Garmin's, and so I went into my mount. I basically got like a mount like shoe box, and I just I was just like, okay, right, where's the Wahoo mount? And I had to go through every single mount. And just see which one had Wahoo on it because they were so similar, but so different. So it doesn't, nothing quite fits together. And it was just, it, it was absolutely infuriating. So I just had to put something in the podcast, in the podcast chat, just saying, why the hell can't everything just be standardized? Um, I think one thing to make clear here is that when we're talking about standards, we're not just talking about things to do with your bike like literally what you're saying with the computer mounts but we're also talking about clothing shoe sizes oh helmet sizes eyewear coverage just everything is open to interpretation by a designer and they're all very keen yeah. to interpret and put their own stamp on it and that's when we get a ton of what well, sea of things that just don't fit together which I think a large like chunk that. of that, large chunk of that, Liam, probably comes from the if you're a fashion industry or just general clothing industry, the lie about what waist size you are when you buy a pair of jeans. It's like, you know, we're, we're supposed to be wearing jeans that come up to like the David Bowie or the 1920s high-waisted, and you measure your waist there, you go, okay, that is the right size. When you go to the shop, no chance, absolutely not in hell. And I think, you know, cycle Ooh, fashion is, has been wrong for years, hasn't it? You know, 5XL. Yeah, I've, I've found with jeans as I've got older, yeah, the, the less accurate it's been, you know. <laughs> yeah, now it's at least two inches bigger than it used to be, I'm sure. <laughs> the thought with things like shoe sizes, though, you know, you could at least get it in the ballpark. Yeah. But, yeah, two sizes here and there, it's, um, it's not the uh, – it just makes life difficult, doesn't it? I don't think anybody else is mad. I mean, I, I find. Sorry, Pat, go on. I was going to say, with shoe size, I don't think anybody else. I just use the centimeter scale now. I stand against a wall, draw a line around the end of my foot, and if they haven't got that system, it's a Japanese system, isn't it? It's just basically centimeters. And then the, the weirdness is, I'm nine and a half in some brands, and I'm 11 in others. And yet they're all 28.2 wow. or 27.9 or whatever it is. 
And yet that's the variation of size shoes that I wear. It's just stupid. Surely yeah. a centimeter is yeah. a centimeter. For me, I mean, because because I review things all the time as well. When I go on the extranet, and which is the you know, behind the scenes, that's that's basically how everything is how everything is um, shown to reviewers. What what's available? We um, it, it has the sizes listed, and I genuinely so I will get a large in one size. And well, a large in one brand, sorry, and a large in another brand in the same shipment, one will fit and one will be incredibly tight. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute minefield out there. It is. Uh, but that pales into insignificance next to things like on the bike, I think. Yeah, at least yeah. with clothing, you know, you can make it, you can make it fit. But if you've got an inch and a quarter headset, and you're trying to fit it into an inch and a half uh, head tube, no matter how much persuasion or or uh, padding, that ain't going to work. No, and I mean it's. I mean, Jamie, you're the engineering expert on this. Why do you think there are so many different? I mean, they call them standards, but let's be honest, there's so many substandards. Well, everyone thinks that their version is best, don't they? I think, um, well, Cannondale is a good example of this, especially with bottom brackets. Uh, the BB30A, they'll claim that it's loads better than a BB30 or a threaded. But is it in our experience? I'd, I'd, I'd much rather everything was one standard. <laughs> but how do you decide which that one standard is? If you just look at the hoo-ha, like um, with phone chargers... So Apple are putting up loads of fuss because all phones are meant to have this USB-C, which also applies to Garmin's and Wahoo's and whatever else. But Apple are putting up loads of fuss. And in the same way, if you say one bo- all bikes have to come with one bottom bracket, then someone's going to be unhappy. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um and yeah, generally the person who's the most unhappy with bottom brackets is Liam. So uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's my my issue isn't with a certain bottom bracket standard. You could take any bottom bracket standard, put it in a properly fitted bottom bracket shell, and you're absolutely fine. If it's aligned and the tolerance is good, you're golden. It's not going to give you any problems as long as, you know, you maybe replace it once a year or 10,000 miles, whatever. You're going to be fine. The problem is when you have, for me, the biggest issue was Cannondale with the BB30A. You had that system. You got some bearings. You put them in and the fit was really sloppy. So then you had the creaking. So what do you do? Oh, yeah, then you can put a wheels manufacturing or some other brands adapter in, but that creates another surface in the system, which is going to click. Or you could put in a system, but now I've spent two, 300 quid on a bottom bracket that realistically I do not care about. If the bottom bracket does a good enough job to deal with my measly number of watts and doesn't make a noise, that is a good bottom bracket in my eyes. I do not care whether it is 3% stiffer, Cannondale, or insert the name of any other bike brand there. I do not care. I just want you to shut up. That's all I want from you. Quiet, please. Just let me enjoy my bike ride instead of spending 300 quid to make you quiet and then just being so frustrated with my bike that I don't want to go on a bike ride anymore. I think Specialized have tried to trick us into thinking that they use one bottom bracket standard. They call all of theirs an OSBV. Yes. When, in fact, they're, they're all different. <laughs> they're, just, they're just called the same thing. Interesting. That's really nasty. Yeah. <laughs> Hot take from Jamie. I have spent many an hour in the garage trying to fit various cranks into bikes that they just won't go into. I think this yeah, is partly all about the fact that they, they want you to go to the um, main deer or their <laughs> franchise brand outlet or whatever it's going to be. So they specialised 
I've heard of other issues with other brands with um, weird, not quite the right size, oversized headset fork combinations. Um, and basically, you have to go to the main guy, and of course, he can sort it out because he's got a shelf of, yeah, that's 2018 one, that's a 2016 one, that's a 2014 one. You're never going to get it right unless you buy them all. But they should do it. But the problem is, we don't all live near the big stores, and the little stores don't get this. So it does cause a lot of problem of buying the wrong product, it's trying to fit it in the garage. And most of us, I think, are all fairly competent mechanics. But even so, sometimes you fit it in and you can see it's going to creak. You just know it's going to creak. I think there's a huge marketing um, deal that keeps the retailer busy with changing this stuff all the time for 3% layer madness, but they get someone to go in and change mm. products. Um, it's not only for that, clearly. I mean, when BB30 came out, I was at the launch for that, and it's just like, this is going to be brilliant. It's free to everybody. It's fantastic. You can fit it to anything. But it was good for their frame set at the time. Everybody else seems to have had problems making it not creak or you know making a creak-free system. Um, for tape, a, what creak. you say about marketing is an interesting point um, because it, different, new is good in terms of marketing. Yes. It gives uh, them something to shout about. It gives us something to talk about. It gives uh, consumers something to latch onto. But that does mean if you want to, if you want to go from our giant's overdrive system to their overdrive two system that means that um you know everything changes newer and better great everyone buys it fantastic i'm impressed you know that's the that's the deal but um yeah it necessarily means that everyone's uh one step behind some of the standards that have come out standards have been absolutely essential the move to um a headset from Quill. I mean, that yeah. was a shock when that happened. The move to have tapered forks in one and one eighth and one and a half, all that version. Is it Giant that had the odd size or Specialized that had an intermediate size? Would it one? It wasn't a standard taper. I accidentally bought about fifty pairs of carbon forks that were the wrong size because I didn't check exactly. Jamie, you'd laugh. I just didn't quite check the bit of inch in American code. Luckily giant i think it was wanted them because they were their size no one else could use them but so some yeah. standards have been essential and we've all gone oh that's absolutely fine we love that but now it seems to be that you're right matt that we need to create something to give our story a little bit of a buzz you know flips and forks what's that about flip chips is that a standard and should it be 10 12 or 15 through axle 12 Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you mean we've, we've gradually sort of um, everyone came out with what they thought was the best system, and we've gradually sort of muddled towards over two or three years, maybe longer, towards almost uh, you might almost call it a standard on the road now, an, an actual proper standard as opposed to you know one of the numerous standards which don't really work as standards, uh, in that we are sort of towards most people have gone for uh 12 millimeter 100 and 142 mm. uh but yeah all the through actually still have a different before you buy it before you buy a new one just in case you're you're on the one with it that isn't i mean i think that the one of the interesting things about cycling in in general is that there are there does i mean there's there does seem to be not necessarily standards, but but limits that really impact the industry. So if you think about, like when we were talking about aero bikes the other day, we were talking about how because of the UCI weight limit, nobody bothers making any bikes that are you know much lighter than that unless they are you know like the specialised Athos. But we don't have any. But you know they, those kind of like limit innovations. They kind of you know make sure that everything's kind of in a box, but. When it actually comes to the stuff that people really care about, you know, like I've been down to my local bike shop, I've went, I went and bought, you know, a, a, you know, I went and bought a bottom bracket and it doesn't fit properly and it still creaks because it's not quite the same. You know, I care, I care more about that than a thirteen thousand pound, you know, bike that doesn't, you know, that I wouldn't be able to race on anyway, and that's all created because of this use because the UCI have put, you know, essentially had these rules that come down i mean can we ever see ourselves in a situation where the uci would potentially 
be a vehicle upon which we could have this standardization or do you think that actually all they really care about is their bike races rather than the actual kind of consumer at the end of the road i don't think it would because um they're i don't really think that it's the remit of uci they they like to people like to kick the uci and say they um uh, hold back innovation which, which you know with any set of rules is going to to some extent but um, they do purposely leave room in, in the rules for a good degree of innovation, which is, you know, how the industry works and how things move on. Um, so personally, I can't see the UCI getting involved in, in much um, in terms of standardization. The other thing is it doesn't really, we might moan about it. Uh, consumers, if they're changing products or they're changing uh, components all the time, might cause um, them some inconvenience and uh, a bit of head scratching and heartache. But the manufacturers really, they they're not going to benefit too much from standardisation, so they don't they don't really care to be honest. If you if you have to go out of your way to buy a bottom bracket uh, from a particular manufacturer they they're not in a particularly they don't particularly doesn't help them to that everyone's buying the same thing you know um if you have to go back to x manufacturer for the fork what, what do they care yeah yeah it's true i mean i think that one thing that could potentially change that is the whole kind of net zero targets that people have because for every one of these you know, I'll go back to the the mounts. For every one of these mounts, which is two mil different and doesn't work for the next one, that's a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of pollution created by each one. So if you think if you think about all of the bikes across the world, how many bikes do you reckon there are? Probably a billion, maybe? On the planet. Yeah. Well no, we know was, was it was it Katie Tom's story? I was just about to say <laughs> educational songs there we go but yeah there's well at least hundreds of millions of bikes across the world and if each one you know if if each brand has a a slight difference in each thing that means that you suddenly have so much variation and so much unneeded manufacturing taking place that creates a lot of you know environmental issues i mean i wonder if there could be you know when we're kind of moving down the line and we get you know once we get rid of the the low-hanging fruit in terms of environmentalism, if we will end up with this kind of standardization where we have, and I'm going to go, I'm going to sound really posh here, but where we have um, cradle-to-cradle manufacturing where everything is designed to not just be standardized, but also where it's designed that it can then be fixed and reused so we don't end up having cheap plastic things and instead we have slightly more expensive, you know, reusable metal things. Um I wonder if, you know, I can't see that happening, potentially not even in my lifetime, but it would be useful if we did eventually get there. It would be nice. I think let's, if we go back to some of the kind of modern things in the bike industry that are prime examples of the issues that we face day in, day out with standardization, Let's look at road tubeless. The move to the ETRTO ETRTO system is a great one because for years you had Mavic coming up with their, was it RSS system? But but for the for the rest of the brands, it was just like the Wild West. And Personally, you know, George, you're the same. You test a load of stuff. All of us here have set up tubeless tires on tubeless wheels. You would think that those two go together, no problem. But my kitchen floor has been covered in sealant so many times. It's ridiculous. I've I've got video. I hopefully will overlay it um, right now of to show you the issues that I've had where not just the fitting of the bead to the rim hook, but also the porous uh, nature of a sidewall that a brand has just gone, oh, yeah, but we'd like to keep the supple cotton feel. Well, great. Now it just pisses out sealant, doesn't it? So 
I think no idea what you're talking something about. like that, <laughs> something something like tubeless is a, a sign where we've had issues in the past through axles as well. But now there seems to be an actual standard coming in. Um, but it would be nice if the cycling industry didn't kind of sleepwalk towards these standards and just get there over five to seven years of frustration for consumers. Um, that would be really nice if it kind of turned up before, you know, um, through axles became a thing or tubeless became a thing. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you say that, but Jamie, you, you had a, a review today published for, um, a set, which they were a set of zips, weren't they? Um, the uh, zip 454 NSWs. That's the Some one. of the most expensive wheels you can buy. And they have, well, tell us about those tires. The tires? Oh, well, oh so yes, they I are. Was, yeah. I was reading your review earlier about how, um, how it, it says that it's compatible with certain tires that it actually isn't compatible with. Yes, uh, not yes, sort of. Um, so they're hookless rims, and on the Zip website, they say that they've optimised these wheels for 25mm tyres, which is quite a sensible sort of size tyre to optimise your wheels for. However, on their compatibility chart, you then look through it, and a lot of brands' 25mm tyres aren't compatible with their hookless rims. So Continental, Vittoria, Specialized, they were, they were all the tyres that I was looking at using. And Just some minor brands really, then, though, mate. <laughs> like it, it, it discounts a whole heap of 25mm tyres. And so you're then using them with 28mm tyres, which isn't a problem. I like using 28mm tyres. But if you look into it really deeply and you're spending £3,200 on a set of wheels surely you should be able to use the tyres that are optimised for the wheels. And I guess that Zip, well, Zip, they are compatible with Zip's own 25mm tyres, but we just go back to the whole, uh, it puts you down one line of products that you can buy. Yeah, it's, um, it's I guess it's the appleification of of bikes but as everybody knows you kind of want to mix and match when it comes to your bike so uh, that doesn't necessarily work in the same way I don't want to get you started sorry Jamie go on maybe we're looking at this as like we all like changing lots of components on our bikes whereas the average consumer just goes to a bike shop and buys a bike and the stuff that's on it might stay on that bike for well, the majority of its life until it wears out anyway, which makes this problem a lot less of a problem because they're not trying to fit a different crank set or tires as soon as they get home. But they yeah, might end true. up with a shock when they get two years down the line or three years down the line and they can't get the product that they need, which to them seems really simple, obvious thing to fit, but it doesn't. they don't make it anymore. I mean, that would be unlikely because you have to be at the end of your production line of something. But, yeah, I mean, that is an issue, isn't it? We're all changing tyres and tubers all the time. I don't think the consumer does that. They find a hat, they find a set that works and they're off. And they're off until they rip the sidewall out or something else happens because it's a faff doing tubers. Even when you're good at it, it's still not. Because your kitchen floor, obviously, as you can say, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. But I mean, that, the, 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 the tyre and rim standard has been a problem, regardless of tubeless or tubed or clincher, whatever you want to call it, for a long time. It's just the plus and minus of manufacturing, um, uh, what's the term, Jamie, when you've got a, a lenient, not leniency. Tolerances. Thank you. And, and you get one at the one end of the spectrum and one at the other end, and it just doesn't work. You, you know, some tyres will fall on a rim. You think, God, that's just so easy. It literally fell at other tyres. You're using a tyre lever to get it on, in which case you probably shouldn't start. Um, and everybody claims it's the same standard, same size. It's got it printed on the wall and on the rim. But that's always been the case. And so I don't think tubeless is particularly guilty of being worse. It's just it's messier, much more messy. <laughs> um, which <laughs> we should all go back to running tubular tyres, shouldn't we? Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm, I'm not hearing a lot of love for that. Um, Jamie yeah. had actually, Jamie had an issue with those uh, zip wheels. So I did want to bring up another <laughs> point was that surely we should have some standardization in finish quality because I know that you had some issues with those zip hubs. I think I've had two or three frame sets in the past few years. Um, I won't name, no, I will name drop them. Uh, Kinesis <laughs> with my uh, my winter bike. Um, I had an SL7. The SL7 had um, a misaligned rear brake mount, which for discs is a nightmare. The Kinesis had so much paint on the e external face of the bottom bracket that it was skewing the bearings basically off like that. So the bearings wore out insanely quickly. I've also had paint issues with frame sets. Surely there's mm. got to be some kind of standardization in before that product leaves the factory. And I guess, Pat, you'll be the one that can best answer this. How frustrating is it when you actually buy a load of product in batch and then you get it and find yeah. that you've got issues left, right, and center? Well, there's, there's two things. There's, you've touched on two different problems there. So the first problem with the paint is something that some manufacturers deal with before it leaves a factory and they call what they face the bottom bracket with tools that are lined up in the center and that should come with a totally cut edge so that it's perfectly aligned. Sometimes you'll pay more for that and some brand just depends on the brand. Other times maybe it's a mistake that that one got overpainted or whatever, but realistically that's something that can be fixed both in your local bike shop. It's not a tool you want to own at home. It's far too expensive for that. Um, or it should be done at the factory and then it costs dollars and then you have to decide is the frame going to cost more or are we going to swallow it. The misalignment thing, yeah, I bought bucket loads of forks for a bike um, that the front brake mount was impossible. There's no chance in hell that it would even get close to clearing the rotor. And uh, mm. one of the things that the factory should do is that they should test everything, every hundred or every thousand product line, um, and you know, do spot checks. And it, it just turned out that literally we had a hundred of these forks um, that were unusable. Um, and they had already been crossed with a large X in the metal and put on one side not to be used. But some bright spark had put them back through the line, thinking they were unpainted and should be used. And they'd got out into production. Things happen, you know, that kind of thing is a, it's a pain, but you, in, in the Far East, you just pay. You choose how much level of attention you want to give that frame before it passes out of the factory and goes you know, on its merry way around the world. It just costs you more money. So you choose better factories, you choose better factories with better tolerances. You know, when certain very high-end Italian frame manufacturing started being made by a very large Taiwanese maker, they chose the very best construction you know, people on that line and moved them off to a different line because they needed to up their game. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy a Colnago. Sorry, did I say that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, that's all about, it's all about costs, isn't it? It's all about where you want to put that in. Some people will pass on to the bike shop, so when you get your bike and you get it reamed, it's fine. Um, the seat posts is another problem. They used to be rubbish. You used to buy a 27.2 and it would never fit. So, you know, it is, I guess it's it's a game of how much can we not get away with, but how much can we not pay at the factory level that doesn't actually matter. But misaligned rear mounts on a modern frame and a carbon mould, you've got to ask, how is that even possible? You know, I mean, but you're talking minute millimetres, aren't you? Which I guess is possible if you line it up slightly wrong in the mold layout. Um, yeah, I, I should say that my rear brake mount was 0.9 millimeters off, uh, but that's enough to, you know, throw it off and, yeah. yeah I think just creates all sorts of headaches. They try incredibly hard to not do any of these things. No one's out there trying to do that. Certainly production lines, you know, they have the, the spot checks and the testing is, is, especially the higher up you go, it's fairly continuous, I should think. So it's, it's rare that you get this stuff, um, although it does seem to have occurred regularly on early BB30 manufacturing across the board. So I don't know how that was, but yeah. Um, I think standard 
the standard of facing bottom brackets, head tubes, seat posts is all sortable locally in the UK in a good shop. The misalignment and non-standardised location of brake mounts, nah, that's that's impossible. Once it's done, it's done, pretty much. So great. So I think to round up or round off even, I think maybe we should go around and choose and each say if you could standardise one thing. It could be anything to do anything across the cycling industry. What would it be? So, Matt, do you want to go first? Oh, crikey. I mean, where do you start? I mean, what what actually is standard? What is a standard size? Not much. I mean, pedal threads, maybe? Or cage bolts? I don't know. You, there ain't a whole lot on the bike that is standard, so where do you start? Uh, well, as someone who's bought uh, the wrong seat post a couple of times, it's just never going to happen, though. You know, there's patents in place that stop these things happening. There's engineering um, reasons to do stuff. But if we take all that into account, what should I say? I'd probably say headsets because that's just annoying. It's a good shout. Uh, inch in a whatever. Just choose one and go for it. I don't care which one. Just choose one and we'll have it. Uh, Jamie, how about you? Um, as annoying as all the bike stuff is, I'm going to go with clothing. So I've bought a small jersey from, I think it was Santini, and it, oh, I don't know if it would have fitted a six-year-old kid. Uh, <laughs> it might have fitted Liam, but anyway, yeah, I just find that really annoying, the clothing sizes. I can be a large in some, a small in others. Sort it out. Pat, how about you? Well, I think it's um, something from building lots of bikes from frame upwards and mucking around with bolts. I would like everything to be T25 or T20, regardless of where it is on the bike. So brake mounts, handlebar stems, stem-facing bolts, everything, not pedals because we can't do that. But, you know, rounding off Allen keys, rounding off Allen bolts is relentless. Even when you've got new, good-quality tools, you find a crap-quality nut, just put a T25 in it, you know. Just got more grip, more ability to get it right, less ability to get it wrong. It's a good shout. I, I yeah, I rounded off um, a bolt this morning, and it was painful getting that out. I ended up using blue tack in the end. Worked the treat. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, stick some blue tack in there. That's a good yeah, cast. That is. Oh, it's proper bodge, yeah, proper bodge. But it worked, and luckily I had a spare one, so I was okay. Um, Liam, how about you? I'm so glad that none of you said it. I would standardise axle sizes. Everything should be, everything around a bottom bracket should be 24 millimetres. There is no need for a 30 mil axle. SRAM uh, dub should not exist. That should be burnt at the stake that is horrific i can't remember is it like 29.4 millimeters like, come on you, you don't need it 24 millimeters does not flex 20 mil, 24 millimeters is absolutely fine for the strongest sprinters in the world and if you say that you can tell the difference you are lying and because i've said axles i can also standardize the width of the axle, and I can also standardize the diameter and width of through axles because that is just horrific. But you could and have the, a certain standard for pitch different pitch disciplines. The and the thread pitch, yes, the thread oh, pitch on them. God. That's that's a minefield. <laughs> so all axles, there you go. Liam, I think that one, yeah, that one is big. That's big and absolutely spot on. Yeah, I was putting tubeless. I was putting tubeless on a set of um, wheels that I'm reviewing earlier, um, and uh, yeah, I had that because um, yeah, I just wanted to switch it out with some other ones, and I couldn't. They're just completely mm. different. It's just a pain in the ass. Um, and yeah, for me, I think it's difficult because three of those are ones that I'd already chosen in my mind. And I don't have another one, so. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go with. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be lazy, and I'm gonna go with um, 
yeah, tubeless standards, I think. So standardize, actual standardization of tires and actual standardization of wheels, of, um, of beads as well. Yeah, just to be lazy. Collective Bicycle Cover by Lacquer exists to rewrite the rules of insurance so it's something people stand with, not against. Lacquer has been voted best cycling insurance provider for the last four years running. No excess, no depreciation, no contract, no funky fine print, and a five-star rated customer service. An experience so good you might actually want to claim. So, whether it's a pothole that's buckled your wheel, some knob that nicked your bike, or an airline who's lost your gear, you can be sure Lacquer has got your back. New customers can get 30 days free bicycle insurance using the code ROADCCPOD30. Right, so today we are discussing how the bike industry is failing in terms of being able to cater to a large swathe of the population. So I've got Jack and Mildred here with me, and we're joined by Stephen May, who is an expert in this area and is currently either the country manager for NAPS, is that right? That's right, uh, country manager for Canap Bikes. Oh, there we go. Yeah, sorry, I can't even pronounce it properly, can I? Canaps Bikes. Um, so, I mean, Mildred, you've covered this for quite a while. It's really mm. kind of you know, some, something that you're you know, quite passionate about. So maybe you could give us a, a brief overview of some of the issues that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, um, being someone who's slightly larger bodied than your average cyclist, uh, it's something that I've experienced personally quite a lot. Um, Although my experience is mostly centred around clothing rather than bikes, I'm quite fortunate that my weight does still fall within the the threshold that puts me on most bikes, although certainly not all. Um, You know, there are certain bikes out there that have, for example, an 80 kilogram weight limit, which I couldn't ride. Um, but I'm also I know I'm not the only one here who would fall into that category. Um, but yeah, my my experience has mostly been within clothing. Um, I generally fall around a UK size 14, which is not even, you know, in terms of average sizes, not actually that big. I think the average size for, for women in the UK is about 16. And yet for most uh cycling apparel brands I fit into their extra large which is usually the top size that they offer clothing which means that anyone slightly larger than me doesn't fit into their kit which just to me is just baffling yeah and I mean in in terms of it's something that I've found as well so it's not you know I wouldn't I wouldn't class myself as you know particularly big or particularly small maybe I'm just particularly average um but yeah even 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 with that you know just with kind of basic body proportions and things there's a lot of weird fits and there's we had a recent discussion about standardization Mm. and i guess it's kind of similar to that um but i mean Stephen, at the moment you're really catering towards um this you know being able to cater bikes towards a wider you know a a wider audience in terms of you know, outside of, you know, what you would generally consider to be the cycling audience. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. This is a really, a really strange one for me. So the backstory to this was, if I go back to my youth, I was a full-time triathlete back in the day. And I was the guy that said, over my dead body, would I ever ride an e-bike? to my parents. Uh, fast forward a number of years later, a <laughs> considerable number of years later, I received the first Canap bike to come into the UK, unpack it, get on it, ride it for five minutes, turn around to my other half who was sat at home, literally after a five minute ride. And I said, I'm going to sell every bike I've got. <laughs> she was like, what? And I'm like, this is just cool. I'd been stopped twice on a five minute ride by people going, mate, that's such a cool bike. <laughs> and I've had both knees operated on both shoulders all through kind of various different injuries. And I've, and I've put on a little bit of weight, not a great deal, but a little bit. And this, I'd kind of been off the bike for best part of 15 years. Uh, and I rode it and I thought, oh, this could really get me back into it. But it was just so easy to ride. And what I realized very, very quickly was that, that the bike, the bike market, the entire industry is, is focused on people that are already let's say built for cycling and that's probably the the best way to put it um if you put 14 16 stone plus on a saddle it is very very uncomfortable even for me at just 12 stone or 12 and a half as my other half keeps on reminding me uh 12 and a half stone now sitting on a racing bike saddle is it's yeah it is very uncomfortable however all of us 
all of us on the, on uh, this podcast, all of us, all the uh, people listening to it, uh, we all know people who are that way, who would like to cycle. Yeah. Now, if I move forwards onto the, the Kanat bike, we've got a bike that's built primarily, it was built for two riders. So we made it road legal as an e-bike and also built and designed for the purpose of two riders, which meets the highway code section 68. Okay. Um, but then what I realized was that the total ro- uh, weight capacity on the bike we'd built was for 28 stone. And we kind of all looked at each other and had that moment of going, hold up. The cycling industry stops full stop at 16 stone. You cannot find a bike unless it looks politely like a 1970s disability catalog product. You can't find a bike that would be nice, comfortable and and cool to ride. And we had what Mark Sutton, the editor of Cycling Industry News, called the most Instagrammable bike he'd ever seen. And anyone could ride it. And that's the point that I got to at Eurobike. So we had a stand at the Eurobike show. I watched 33,000 people in the cycling industry walk past the front of our stand, and I didn't see a single person over 14 stone. And I had this like, oh my goodness moment. You know, like that, that moment where you go, hold up, I'm trying to sell a bike into an industry that doesn't have a person over that weight in it or certainly not that I saw over five days. Um, and they, they're they going to have customers coming through the door who are looking for this product, yet no one in the store would ever ride it, unless, I mean, it, was I, super, unless it was super duper cool. You know? I, I mean, I was, I was looking at the comments on the article, and I think that kind of reflects, uh, not, not to bash our, our readers, but... They're sort of some of the criticisms under the article, like that it looks like a moped and it doesn't look like what they consider to be a bike. But then you're not. We want people to get involved who don't want it to. They, the look of a road bike to them looks uncomfortable and uh, something they wouldn't want to ride. So I, I guess they're sort of reinforcing your point there, aren't they? By saying, yeah, "Oh, exactly. I don't want that. It there, doesn't look like a bike." There, there uh, are two real key things. Number one is the front door entry into a cycle shop for a person over 14 stone is a really really uncomfortable door to go through yeah and and it's brilliant that mildred is nodding during this like (laughs) absolutely she gets it i've i've gone into cycle shops and i've said what do you do for a larger customer and the first thing they do is look at each other like there's no answer that comes out it's just like almost you're not welcome here not not to that degree but they don't have a solution so they can't provide a solution or equally suggest a solution for a customer there are a few people that go to can kind of head towards the um cargo bikes and, and that area but like i said it's like a 1970s disability catalog it's like it's it's not something that you would go oh well that'd be really cool to ride yeah. what i also discovered in that in that journey of kind of a moment of looking in the mirror, okay? Um, I called and have spoken to either on Instagram or through articles, like reaching out to Mildred, to people that have written articles. And without exception, every single one of them says, absolutely nothing happened about my article instead of, uh, apart from me getting bashed. (laughs) Mm. I think I have Um, a really relevant confession to make here. So I bought a my my first bike road bike I ever had was a Trek 1.1. Uh, I got it stolen unfortunately, and then went on eBay, found a very similar bike, and met a guy on a motorway uh, service station to buy it. And um, so he was he wasn't a small guy, he wasn't into it, but he was doing a sportive with his mates, and um, he'd obviously walked into a bike shop and bought a bike with a view to start road cycling. And he sold it for me. It was a crazy cheap price for considering. And I just felt bad because it had, it was set up. So the stem was like pointing skywards and the saddle. So that the bike shop had basically tried to set this racing bike up for him like a mountain bike. So he, because he told them that he was used to riding like a chopper basically. And, it, and he was selling it because I just felt really bad. I was like, no, you, you, um, they just they've just sold you the wrong bike basically you know or um and and so i i don't know i was sort of thinking shall, shall i not buy it off him and give him some 
tips to make it make it more comfortable <laughs> um, for himself, or maybe exchange, see about exchanging it for a, yeah. a a more comfortable bike that he would have easily got round that. But he didn't need a, a race bike for the sportive, but he went in there and um, they, they basically tried to put a square peg in a round hole for him, and then he ended up selling it to me for a third of the price he bought it for. for you know, and I, I love it and I've made really good use to it of it, but. Um, it's just a shame because he obviously walked into a bike shop that didn't know how to cater to what he wanted. And that's, that, that's part of the challenge. So if you bring in the e-bike element, as soon as you put a motor onto a onto a bicycle, the bicycle does not have to look like a bicycle. Mm. It's really simple. Like a, a scooter is essentially a bike. It's just redesigned. It's it's the same. It enables you to break the rules of conventional thinking. The challenge is for the cycling industry: a bike should look like this. If yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't stand a chance. However, when you put um, a larger wheel format, so a, a twenty by four inch tire, the four inches wide on the road gives you amazing stability. So what it means is anyone who's got a higher center of gravity, because that's the physics that sit around this, suddenly they get no wobble and weave when they ride a bike. It feels much, much more stable. The motor enables you to be supported whilst you're riding, which is what a larger person needs because they're pushing a greater amount of resistance on the road if it was a skinny tire versus if it was a wider tire. Um, and, and what's happening is that you're getting the support that you need to ride that then has massive mental, physical, health, and well-being benefits. i got to tell you, the most cynical people in the cycling industry are mechanics. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are. It's just facts. Okay? As, as someone who lives with one, I can agree. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, man, no, matter what you, what you, no matter what you present, they're always going to be cynical. And that's brilliant. Disc brakes. All never catch is, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's a mountain bike? We don't have mountains in England. Yeah. Carbon. Um, <laughs> so you put a you put a rider onto the Canap bike, and it's got a motorcycle style saddle. So number one, it's comfortable. No matter what the size of your ass is, it's comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I think an interesting. So I mean, in terms of bikes, there's obviously <clears throat> we know that there's lots of. I mean, it, it, in terms of kind of cycling in general. We know that they aren't, you know, that, that there's not a lot of support and there's not a lot of kind of product development that goes into kind of the heavier rider. Um, but I find that especially when it comes to kind of new cycling innovations, that is kind of particularly pronounced. So when we look at things like deep rim wheels, when we look at things like uh, new carbon frames, that kind of thing, even like for me, so bit of an admission over lockdown i uh couldn't really do much exercise and had my first child so naturally i put on quite a lot of weight so that meant that basically you sound like, you, sound like you had the, the child the way you put it <laughs> well yeah i mean to, to be honest by but by, by about month three it looked like i had um but it was uh it was kind of one of those things where you know i put on i think i put on about 12 kilos in total so i was really close to you know the the limits for a lot of the carbon wheels that I tend to test. And it kind of added a lot of stress to that situation because I was kind of like, well, these are the wheels that I'm used to using. These are the, these are the wheels that have been designed for the kind of riding that I do, but I don't feel at, at this weight, I don't feel particularly comfortable using them because when it says the weight limit, it feels like, oh God, these things which are these, these things are going to crack under me, which is not good. I mean, I mean, in reality, that's not going to happen. All it means is that you need to treat your wheels more more often, and you know, if you go over a bump, you're more likely to bend a spoke, something like that. But it kind of it does feel consistently like you are an abnormality when you're using that kind when you're using that kind of equipment when you have these kind of weight limits. And I mean, another interesting point, and Mildred, again, something that that, that you mentioned before is um, is cycling clothing. Mm. So, I mean, especially, I, I mean, this is especially true for uh, kind of female cyclists versus kind of male cyclists, because you've got this, fa you know, you've got the famous element of you know, mammals, where you've got these middle-aged men who generally kind of squeeze themselves into lycra. But I don't think that necessarily exists as the... As a, as a thing for women at the moment so that you don't tend to have that 
breadth stereotype yeah you don't have, <laughs> well you don't seem to have the kind of the breadth of sizing and the breadth of fit that you tend to get with a lot of male clothing no, is, that, is that what you found as well absolutely I mean cy- cycling clothing is definitely not designed for curves I can tell you that and um I think really the the crux of this whole conversation is about how we need to um normalize this idea of the cyclist being of all different shapes and sizes and actually moving away from this one idea of what the cyclist looks like and the same thing about what the bike looks like. So all it's underpinning this whole conversation. And when it comes to women's clothing, I mean, in, when it comes to women's cycling in general, there's just not as much coverage for women as there are men. So we haven't even really had the time to develop these ideas of different stereotypes that you get, like the mammal, because we just haven't seen enough we've not been around enough within the within the media and, and actually in the public view um and then when you actually look at the yeah the size ranges as I said you know I'm I'm not you know in terms of um different kind of scales of of you know or what you would call fatness I'm I'm large but I'm not I'm not overly large and yet I am the largest size for a huge amount of cycling brands. And when I, you know, in my days of reviewing kit, I would always be asking them for their largest sizes. And sometimes it would still be a bit of a squeeze to get in. And I know so many women who are much larger than me who basically have just said, I can't, I can't wear Lycra. It doesn't fit me. There are some brands out there now that are producing much larger and more inclusive size ranges, but a lot of them are American and not the easiest to get in the UK. You know, brands like Machines for Freedom and Velocio, for example, they they go up to sort of 4XL and they're much easier for people to, like, for, um, they're much better for people to fit into, but actually getting hold of them in the UK is really hard. Um, so yeah, I found, I, I found it really interesting, Mildred, when I reached out to the guys at um, Fat Lad at the back. Mm. Now, I only fa- again, I only found them through, through type, them, yeah. type, in, type in searches on, on Google. Um, and they're running a campaign at the moment, which is called Fat Can. Yes, I have and seen that. And like, it's very, very edgy. And, mm. <laughs> um, but what they're trying to say is it's not impossible. And there we have it, episode 31 of the Road to Seed podcast in association with Lacquer. Now, I think that that was a really interesting pod. We talked about kind of a lot of hot button stuff um, and a lot of it to do with retailing, why things are a certain way, why we have certain things that are standardised, certain things that don't, why we have a lack of options when it comes to larger people cycling. Um, so, yeah, I think it was heavy, but in a good way so i hope you guys agree with me as always if you guys want to get in touch you can find us on social media just search for road cc and you can also send us an email to podcast at road.cc we love getting your emails so yeah send any along and you may even get read out on the pod so until next time cycle safe bye